Welcome to Tell Me More, a podcast series featuring distinguished visitors to Tufts University who share their ideas, discuss their work, and shed light on important topics of the day. The United States has evidence that Russia meddled in the 2016 presidential election in an attempt to destabilize American democracy, a fact we know from special counsel Robert Mueller's 22-month investigation. So what does the history and recent experience of U.S.-Russian relations tell us about how we got to this point? Michael McFall served as the U.S. ambassador to Russia from 2012 to 2014 under the Obama administration. In a wide-ranging conversation with Professor of International Politics Daniel Dresner of the Fletcher School, McFall shares his view on Russia's interference in the election, as well as his fears about a new arms race and what it has meant for him to be banned from returning to Russia. McFall, the author of the memoir From Cold War to Hot Peace, an American ambassador in Putin's Russia, served for five years in the Obama administration. He's now a professor at Stanford University, where he directs the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. Let's listen in. We're here today to welcome Ambassador Michael McFall and also Professor of Politics at Stanford University. Uh, I'm particularly happy to see Professor McFall because my last year in graduate school uh, at Stanford was your first year as a professor. Um, And you gave me lots of good advice, actually, about the job market. So, uh, you know, uh, it makes you feel feel good. Um, But let's, uh, let's talk about the book. So... In 2008, you were invited to put your work at Stanford uh, University on hold and join Barack Obama's presidential campaign uh, as Obama's advisor on Russian affairs during the year when Dmitry Medvedev was elected president of Russia and Vladimir Putin was the country's prime minister, uh, his not the nominal number two. Uh, you then served as U.S. ambassador to Russia from 2002 when Vladimir Putin was elected president of Russia to 2014. You write about your work uh, in the book, um, which was published in 2018 uh, and is a New York Times bestseller. Uh, Again, the title, From Cold War to Hot Peace. Can you begin by describing the climate in Russia during your years serving the Obama administration, as well as the state of U.S.-Russian relations, you know, at the outset? Sure. Well, first, thanks for having me, Dan. Um, And I'm glad I gave you good advice because you've done really well. So it must have been something smart. Um. I arrived in Moscow in January 2012, right as U.S.-Russian relations were pivoting in a very negative direction. And it was a departure from the previous four years when we had a much more cooperative relationship. The trigger for that is different from earlier triggers in confrontational periods in U.S.-Russian relations. You know, earlier triggers were oftentimes foreign policy things that were done by one side or the other. Uh, um, This was a trigger uh, as a result of politics inside Russia. Uh, And in particular, there were massive demonstrations uh, to protest a falsified election in a parliamentary election in December 2011. And Putin, to, to marginalize those protesters and to mobilize his base because he was running for president at the time. He was in the midst of a presidential election, turned to this, you know, kind of Cold War era anti-American propaganda lines and blamed us for those demonstrations. So that was the moment 
that I arrived. Now, I want to be clear as two social scientists. We know that causation and correlation are two different things. Uh, it was an accident of history that I think a lot of people forget that I arrived then and not nine months earlier when President Obama first asked me to, to do this job. And he asked me to do the job at the height of cooperation. This was early 2011. But by the time I got there, things had changed pretty radically. Um, during your time with President Obama, you know, you focused a lot on the reset, the policy that you helped craft. What changes did you see happen because of that policy? What were the, what were the you think, the tangible results from it? Well, I'm glad tangible results is a really good phrase because I was always against pushing for a, quote unquote, better relationship with Russia. Uh, I, I only saw better relations as a means to an end uh, and to make it the objective of diplomacy. And I would say this about any bilateral relationship, including our allies, uh, that the, the objective should always be about tangible things. Uh, in the security realm, in the economic realm, even about our values, if you want to do that, but but concrete things. And so uh, that's the way we frame the reset, uh, at least from my vantage point. And I know that the president endorsed that strategy. Um, and I do think we, we got uh, a number of things done. We, we signed a new START treaty, reducing by 30 percent the number of nuclear weapons allowed uh, by the United States and Russia. Uh, we opened up new supply routes through Russia uh, into Central Asia and Afghanistan. It was called the Northern Distribution Network as a way to reduce our dependencies on Pakistan. Uh, we cooperated with Russia very closely vis-a-vis uh, -vis our strategy uh, towards Iran. Uh, and in the initial phase, it was a pressure track, and so we got them to cooperate uh, and put in place significant sanctions against Iran. And remember... They had a lot more economic activity with Iran than we did. So that was uh, asymmetrically more costly to Russia than it was to us. And yet they, they cooperated with us. And then they were a vital partner in getting the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, without them at the table, I don't think we would have got that done. Um, we did a number of, of, of economic things, too. We Most importantly, we brought Russia into the World Trade Organization after 20 years of negotiations, we finally completed that set of negotiations. And trade between the United States and, and Russia did increase by 40% during that period. Um, and, you know, uh, attitudes of Russians became more positive towards America and vice versa. So, uh, you know, across many dimensions, I think there was, uh, you know, a concrete achievements and then and the prospect of even things going in a more... Uh, cooperative way long term. So we are both social scientists. And while the word reset is obviously most closely associated with the Obama administration, you could argue that if you go back to the George W. Bush administration, and frankly, if you talk about the Trump administration, the bilateral relationship seems to follow a very familiar narrative at this point, which is yeah. there's this initial sort of warm outreach by the United States to, uh, to Russia. Um, there's some degree of, of you know, talk of comedy and so on and so forth, and then the relationship curdles. I mean, that yep. certainly happened with the Bush years. It obviously happened with the Obama years. And you can make the case that it's happened during the Trump years as yep. well. So, you know, is this a relationship that you think is fated to be an enduring rivalry, or do you think that it's possible to, to view a different kind of great power relationship in the future? So it's a great observation about those three administrations. And I remember very vividly 
my first conversation with outgoing Assistant Secretary for Europe, Dan Freed, at the time, who said, yeah, you guys are going to go through this. And he was part of it for a while. He was in the government throughout that time, but it'll end the same way that it ended during the Bush years. Um, I would say a couple of things, uh, however, there's some caveats. Number one, um, our reset, as we just went over the list, we actually achieved concrete results. Um, I, I don't know what that list would be between the in the in the Trump era. I don't know what tangible achievement they have in U.S.-Russian relations. Um, Bush administration, I would say the same. Uh, and remember, uh, initially the Bush administration was engaging in this uh, reaching out uh, to President Putin because they were going to do some things unilaterally that they knew were going to displease Putin. Withdrawal from the ABM treaty. First and foremost. Um, and I actually briefed President Bush uh, two weeks before he met with President Putin um, uh, with a group of three or four others, our, our former and my uh, current co- uh, colleague, uh, Condoleezza Rice, was the national security advisor at the time. Uh, and it was really clear for me from that conversation that that, that was their strategy. Was that the meeting where, where fam- infamously Bush said he looked into Putin's yes. soul? Or, yeah, okay. yeah, and uh, he was ready to do that. He was thinking about trying to do that to try to achieve this objective of taking the edge off of pulling out of the ABM treaty. Then, of course, September 11th happened, and that did create a real bond, I would say, between Bush and Putin. And for a while, they did think that they were fighting a, a global war uh, against terrorism together. But I also want to remind there were some other resets that I think were even more consequential. Uh, the Gorbachev era, uh, call it a reset, but, uh, you know, for detente, if you want that word. But that was way more dramatic than what we did. Uh, and I would say the, the early years of the Yeltsin era as well, between President Clinton and President Yeltsin. Um, and I bring those up to remind your listeners that I see actually a lot more discontinuity in U.S.-Russian relations over the last 30 years. It's become very vogue these days to say uh, it's always been this way, it always will. Um, And no, I I see a lot more variation. Um, And I think the variation depends in part on the kind of political system that you have in Russia. So I don't think it's just a coincidence that the more autocratic Russia's become, the more tension they've had with uh, the democratic West. And not just the United States, by the way. It's, it's with other uh, democratic countries in Europe as well. Is any kind of substantive cooperation with Russia possible if the leader at the top is someone like Vladimir Putin? Is what's required a two-track strategy of how do we deal with someone like Putin and then what do we do with Russia after Putin? Yeah, those are two big, tough, interesting questions. Um, you know, with Putin, cooperation is possible as long as you acquiesce to all the things he wants. <laughs> uh, that's the way he sees it. You know, he sees uh, the confrontation is all about our mistakes. Um, and that's why he was so excited for candidate Trump, because candidate Trump uh, talked that way. It was candidate Trump who said that he'd look into recognizing Crimea right. as part of Russia, that he would lift sanctions that he thought that NATO was obsolete and, you know, never said a word about democracy and human rights. Uh, So had President Trump followed through on those things that he just talked about as a candidate, 
I think U.S.-Russian relations would be a lot, uh, you know, friendlier or, be- or better. But remember what I said earlier, uh, better is not the objective. Uh, the objective is things that are uh, good for the United States. Um, and I do, th- you know, I think Putin still holds out some hope, maybe after re-election, that he'll be able to to pivot back to that personal relationship with Trump that, that he thinks could be moved in a positive way, cutting against the grain of the deep state that is constraining uh, President Trump. That's the way he talks about it. Even in his last big speech on foreign policy not long ago, he went out of his way to blame, and Dan, I think he's talking about you and me, by the way, mm-hmm. foreign policy elites for oh, yeah, troubles in U.S.-Russian yes. relations. Thank you for including me in that. Yes, yeah. uh, that's the, uh, but he didn't, he didn't single out President Trump. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, your opinion about sort of Russian meddling in the the U.S. 2016 uh, election? You know, you said uh, in the talk that you you thought that while Russia's intervened or attempted to intervene in, in previous elections, and this is, I think, an acknowledged fact, um, that what they did in 2016 was more, I think the word you used was impactful. Um, care to elaborate on that? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say two things. One is they had multiple instruments that they were deploying to try to shape the election. And two, uh, I, you know, it's hard to trace causality here because there are so many other factors at play. Uh, but I think one intervention in particular, you know, it's called doxing, uh, where they stole information from the DNC and John Podesta, the chairman of Hillary Clinton's campaign, and they published that uh, via WikiLeaks. Um, and... That had a profound impact on the way that people perceived uh, uh, candidate Clinton. There's been some panel data uh, that I read recently about October uh, polling people three times in October, and she fades from uh, strong, you know, qualified to be president at 56, I think, and then it falls to 48 just within that period. Now, there are other things going on, and there are other events, and but, you know, the way – and I'm not an expert on this, uh, but I know a lot of experts on this. And, you know, the story they tell is that the the story was all just this mishmash of the, the missing emails and the WikiLeaks emails and the constant uh, repeating of that story by uh, candidate Trump. I think he, he mentions WikiLeaks 165 times, if I'm remembering – remembered it off the top of my head in October – uh, and they very much had a strategy to, to to just tie that all together, whereas all of his various scandals that, that came up uh, intermittently never tied together in, in one knot. And through that period in October, his numbers stay the same. He does not fall in October. So so I jumped ahead of myself. That That's the impact part. Did they try to influence? Did they have a candidate? The answer is yes. Putin said it himself at the Helsinki summit. He wanted Trump to win. Did they try to help? The answer to that is yes. Um, And it was multiple means. So I mentioned doxing. That's one. Uh, They also used conventional media, uh, uh, Russia Today uh, uh, and their other platform, Sputnik. Uh, They then used social media um, in disguised ways, as we now know, uh, through the Internet Research Agency. Um, and, And they're doing two things that to the same end. One just sometimes it was just overt support for for Trump and overt negative uh, uh, tweeting and information about Clinton. 
but more generally, uh, you know, just polarizing society, playing on polarization that was already there. Um, you know, the, the, the theory of that was that that was going to help Trump uh, as the disruptor. Um, so they did that. We also know that they, uh, they pledged, whether they delivered on it, we still don't know, but they pledged to provide disinformation on Secretary Clinton to the Trump uh, campaign. And they had this famous meeting uh, where uh, Natalia Veselnitskaya, you know, got a meeting with the three top people in the campaign because of this promise. One other thing, they cruised around on the electoral infrastructure in 21 states, according to the intelligence community. Thankfully, they didn't use that capacity to disrupt the election. If memory serves, that was the one direct message that President Obama gave to Vladimir Putin in the fall of of 2016. And I, from what I understand, there were multiple messages with multiple actors. Uh, Again, I don't know what Putin's calculations were, but that without question for the Obama administration, that's what they were most worried about in 2016. Um, And then there's one more tool, an instrument of influence that they use you know, within Russian society, most certainly in Europe, uh, but I don't know if it's been used here, uh, but that's money uh, and loans, uh, free money that create leverage. Uh, I, I know and I've seen many instances of that. I, uh, that's how Putin rules Russia in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we still don't know the full story there uh, with respect to uh, the Kremlin and the Trump organization. Let's talk a little bit about presumably one area where we would like to see more uh, bilateral cooperation, and that's arms control. So the United States is now pulled out of the INF Treaty. Um, START two is set to expire, I, I want to say, 2021. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any indication of momentum in terms of, of renewing that. What do you think the likelihood is of another arms race, um, replaying what we saw uh, you know, back during the Cold War? And furthermore, what steps would you recommend to presumably limit that possibility um, or to to at least allow for some cooperation in that area, even if there's not necessarily cooperation across the board? I am worried about a new arms race, uh, and it's one that I fear we'll lose um, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, the Russians have invested heavily in modernizing their nuclear arsenal. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have not yet. Uh, so the, uh, that's number one. Number two, they have some new weapons uh, that are not even uh, controlled by the New START Treaty. Uh, that worries me, uh, particularly this underwater torpedo, nuclear-armed torpedo. Number three, uh, the INF Treaty um, limit, limited uh, these intermediate-range uh, missiles, um, and that was a fantastic achievement by the Reagan administration because there was a huge asymmetry and advantage to Russia because they happened to be in Europe. Uh, we're not. And it took considerable amount of political uh, will uh, in Germany and the, and the UK to, to deploy those missiles. People forget there were millions of people demonstrating on the streets against those deployments. Uh, Russia doesn't have to do that. They can deploy in Russia. Uh, and, and I fear if... Russia, now that they're no longer bound by the INF Treaty, starts deploying, it'll be very difficult for us to respond on land, uh, given the politics of, of our very, you know, 
difficult, how is that for a diplomatic term, uh, transatlantic relationship with a lot of those countries. Where are we going to put those missiles? And, and then we're at a real disadvantage on that front. Um, and, then, and then finally, on the, you know, I, just, just generally, I think the world's better uh, off with fewer nuclear weapons than more. Um, and as I used to always say in the government, uh, a play on Ronald Reagan, uh, don't trust, only verify. Uh, I think a big part of arms control is the sharing of information to reduce uncertainty about what the other side is doing so that we don't do things based on bad information. Um, and, uh, that's what the new start treaty helps us do. It has the most comprehensive set of inspections we've ever had. Uh, and, and we lose that. And, 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 and so it's not just about keeping a cap on the, the number of nuclear weapons. It's, it's becoming where Russia goes dark. Um, and if Russia goes dark at a time when it takes less time to launch a nuclear war, because that's what you get with these intermediate, uh, uh, you know, uh, rockets. Remember, that was one of the main reasons to get rid of them, mm-hmm. is it, it, it was too short of a time to right. when you had to make a decision. ICBMs give you more time. Uh, that's not a good thing. And, and we've seen, you know, from time to time, miscalculations about what happened out in Hawaii not too long ago when they thought they were under attack. You know, the accidents can happen. Your colleague Scott Sagan has written I was just gonna, a book on Exactly. Things. And Scott, Professor Scott Sagan at Stanford, uh, can paint many nightmarish scenarios where you stumble into conflict. Uh, and, you, you know, we really can't afford to stumble into conflict when nuclear weapons are involved. You are now on the sanctions list from Russia, which means you're barred from from returning to that country. Do you think you'll ever go back? Yeah, I'm an optimist, you know, based on no empirical data, just because I was born in Montana. Uh, I mean, I don't want to joke about it. Growing up in Bozeman, I I understand why you're optimistic. It is a gorgeous place. It's a nice place. You've been there. Um, um, I mean, this is the... I've been out of Russia for five years now. Uh, that's the longest I've been out of that country since 1983. Wow. I used to go there a lot. Yeah. Uh, and I, I've lived there many times. I have lots of Russian friends, many of whom I haven't seen. Um, and so I don't want to joke about it. I, right. It is, for me, a, a personal tragedy that I can't be there. Um, and after the Helsinki summit, uh, and the day after when the general prosecutor's office gave a press conference about wanting to interrogate uh, several Americans that allegedly had broken Russian law. Right, including you. And I, and, yeah. I was on that list. Um, you know, I think it's it would be dangerous for me to go there right now. I have to ask, what was your reaction that day? That had to have been a surreal moment. Well, it was, it, it, but it, it happened over two days because right. in, in Helsinki, so just to set the scene again, yeah. Uh, three days or two days before Helsinki, the summit, the big summit between Trump and Putin, uh, Mueller indicted 13 Russian GRU officials. And so in a very classic tit for tat uh, that Putin likes to play, he came to Helsinki to say, OK, you want to interrogate these Russian intelligence officers? Here's our list of Americans that we want to interrogate because we believe they broke Russian law. Right. And um you know, I was on live TV for NBC when uh, they started to discuss this at the press conference. Uh, President Trump said he thought that was a great idea, a very generous idea. 
And I actually gave uh, I gave him a pass then because uh, my explanation is he doesn't know what he's talking about. Right. Um, but this is a good reason why you should have staff in there that can help you with these things. He's got a very competent uh, Russia hand on his NSC staff, Fiona Hill. So she could have helped him in that situation. That's So that was the first blush. Yeah. It was only on the plane ride home the next day uh, from Helsinki to San Francisco that I started to get bombarded with emails from Russian journalists. And they were at this press conference by the prosecutor general. It's kind of the equivalent of our attorney general. Yeah. And he gave a press conference going through the names that Putin was referring to. And that's where I was on the list. And, and just to be clear, the alleged crime that I committed was not when I was ambassador. It was when I was working at the White House coordinating U.S. policy in response to the, the death of Sergei Magnitsky. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was my crime. Um, uh, and that was surreal. That was weird. I was like, oh, my God. You know, I, I thought I'd left my problems with Putin behind. I'm living quietly in Palo Alto. And now they're reaching out to, to make my life more complicated. And then for two more days, the Trump administration uh, didn't bat that back. It took it took uh, a lot of effort before they finally did. 98 to 0 resolution in the Senate. Um, but uh, so that the good news is that they did. The bad news is that I still have to worry when I travel abroad because uh, Russia is a notorious abuser of the Interpol system. Right. And I think it's a low probability that they would go after me, but my lawyers uh, assess that it's not a zero probability. Right, and after you know the Skripal incident, you know, I, I mean, I, I talked to I talked to a lot of old Russia hands after that who were had the opinion of, wait, that's that's a different line that was crossed right, right there, and so, yeah. Um, One has to worry. Yeah, just one last question. Um, can you tell us uh, one thing about your time spent working under President Obama that people don't know? Something people don't know about Obama. Uh, he played a ton of spades. Really? I bet you that's something that most I did. Don't I know. did not know that. Wow. So, so his ritual. Um, you mean in traveling or yes? Yeah. So his ritual. Um, you know, we would get on the plane. Um, Air Force One, if it was with him, uh, he would do, you know, take off his suits. Um, he's a very skinny guy, too. A lot of people seeing him up close, he's he's a very fit man. Uh, I played basketball and football with him a few times. He's, he's, <laughs> he's a fit guy. Um, but, uh, you know, we'd kind of do the rounds if we were – With me, it would be something substantive, usually talking about our negotiating strategy for when we land. Um, And then he would retire up to the front of the plane, which is where his office was or where the conference room was. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was almost always the same three guys. Uh, I can probably name them. Reggie Love, his body guy, his kind of assistant. Uh, Pete Souza, his photographer. Um, many of whose photos are in my book that Pete took. Um, And the third was Marvin Nicholson. Uh, These are people you wouldn't know. Marvin was the trip director. He had had been with them through the campaign. And they would um, play spades for hours and hours and hours, and they would have running games throughout the entire trips. 
Um, and I remember once uh, sitting, we were, in, we were at the NATO summit in Lisbon. We were, I thought we were doing some important uh, negotiations. Uh, this was about missile defense stuff with Medvedev. And we were in the hold room for the American delegation. Um, and, you know, we're all kind of mulling about and, you know, nervous people are there. Like Axelrod is, you know, he's a kind of a nervous guy. Tom Donilon, you know, trying to get us all on focus. And, and Reggie pulls out the, the cards <laughs> and they just start playing spades. It's like, come on now. We got some work to do here. But um, that was his, that, that's the way he, that's what he would do when traveling. And then he would golf, of course, uh, was the other way to unwind. That uh, the spades thing is good. I like that. That's a good way to close. Um, so thank you, uh, Ambassador McFall, for being here. Uh, I encourage everyone to uh, purchase from Cold War to Hot Peace, which is now uh, in all fine bookstores and uh, online available. And this is Daniel Dresner signing off. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tell Me More. Please subscribe and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And to be the first to hear about new episodes, please follow Tufts University on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd also welcome your thoughts on the series. You can reach us at tellmemore at tufts.edu. That's T-U-F-T-S dot E-D-U. Tell Me More is produced by Katie McLeod Strollo, Anna Miller, Dave Nusher, and Stefan Hacker, who also edited this episode. Web production and editing support provided by Taylor McNeil. Special thanks to Lindsay Hemis, Valerie Wences, and the Russian and Eurasia program at the Fletcher School. Our theme music is sourced from DeWolf Music, and my name is Patrick Collins. Until next time, be well. <laughs>